0: Hi, uh, welcome everyone to our last uh, Modern Chinese Humanities Seminar of the fall semester. Uh, my name is Li Tian and I teach uh, Chinese and East Asian Film and Media at Harvard. I'm co-hosting the series with my colleague David Wong, uh, professor of modern Chinese literature. And our hope is to facilitate conversations around new scholarship in the literary media and cultural studies of modern China in the Sinophone world. Uh, we are very grateful for the sponsorship and logistical support of the Fairbank Center. With special thanks to Mark Grady. Um Today, we are we are really honored to have mm-hmm. Professor Misha Hawks uh, speak to us about internet and uh, I'm sorry literature and censorship in China since 1979. Um, Professor Hawks teaches Chinese literature at. Um, um, the University of Notre Dame, the Department of East Asian Languages and Cultures, uh, where he he also serves as the director of the Liu Institute for Asia and Asian Studies. Um, He has published widely on modern Chinese literary culture, especially early 20th century Chinese magazine, um, literature and print culture. Um, and contemporary internet literature. Uh, His latest book, Internet Literature in China, was listed by Choice Magazine as one of the top 25 outstanding academic titles of 2015, and is indeed essential reading for all students and scholars of contemporary Chinese culture. Uh, And today he will be speaking to us about his new book project uh, on literary and cultural censorship in modern China from the early 20th century uh, to the present uh, day. So uh, during and also after his talk, if you have any questions, please feel free to type them into the Q&A and um, I will be ventriloquizing your questions after the lecture. So without further ado, Professor Hawks.
1: Thank you so much. Um, I'm very grateful to Professor Lidia and Professor David Wang for their invitation uh, to speak at this wonderful seminar. Um, so I am going to share my screen and then switch to my notes, and then I'm going to start. So one second. All right, take it. You can all see that. Um, so. I want to start with an apology. In 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 my abstract uh, for this talk, the very first line of the abstract, uh, I give the date, July 30th, 1979, for Deng Xiaoping's famous address to the Fourth National Conference of Chinese Writers and Artists. It was, of course, not July the 30th, 1979. It was uh, October the 30th, 1979. Uh, So on October the 30th, 1979, Deng Xiaoping addressed the fourth national conference of Chinese writers and artists. And here we see him uh, in the People's Daily of the next day. Uh, It's not the picture at the top. That's actually Hua Guofeng uh, meeting Queen Elizabeth in London at Buckingham Palace. But there's the picture at the bottom, uh, the rest of the front page entirely devoted to the fourth uh, National Conference of Writers and Artists and Deng Xiaoping's speech there. Um, Towards the end of his speech, Deng Xiaoping stated to what I presume to be collective sighs of relief, that the party's leadership of literature and the arts does not mean issuing orders, nor requiring writers and artists to make themselves subservient to political tasks, unquote. In doing so, he redefined the relationship between CCP ideologues and creative producers, which had become increasingly politicized during the first 30 years of communist rule. He also reintroduced the leader's speech as an important element of cultural policy. In this paper, I shall look at several examples of such speeches by different post-Mao leaders indicating how they signal shifts in reform-era cultural policy, while maintaining the basic consensus about art's relative autonomy from politics, as forged by Don. I'll discuss the content of these speeches alongside an account of the process of dismantling of what Perry Link has called the socialist Chinese literary system. I shall highlight the changes in censorship and control of literary production over the course of the post-Mao era, taking as my examples two very famous cases, the banning of Jia Pingwa's Fei Du and the banning of Yan Lianke's Wei Ren Fu, or serve the people. But first, I shall do what almost no scholars of PRC literary censorship have done, namely to connect my research to censorship theory. Studies of censorship in the Euro-American tradition often start with John Milton's 1644 Areopagitica speech to the English Parliament, in which he launched a devastating attack on the 1643 licensing order, which introduced strict rules for registering print products prior to publication. Milton famously argued for tolerance with rhetorical flourishes such as this one, quote, but if all minds cannot be the same, and who thinks that they should be, it is undoubtedly healthier, more far-sighted, and more Christian if many are tolerated rather than all compelled. Unquote. But as is well known, Milton effortlessly followed this up with an equally eloquent self-contradiction when he said, “I do not mean that popery and superstition should be tolerated. It destroys all religious and civil rights and independence and so should be destroyed itself. Also, no law can possibly allow that which is immoral or evil absolutely against social conduct or morality unless that law intends to make itself unacceptable. So from the very beginnings of the resistance against censorship in the Western tradition, there has been claim to tolerance but with a whole bunch of exceptions. And this remains the model for most laws related to freedom of the press in most countries, now also conclu- including many non european American countries, such as the People's Republic of China. Even in cases where a constitution, such as the German constitution, explicitly states that there shall be no censorship, this is taken to mean that there shall be no pre-publication censorship, but that certain types of expression can have post-publication legal consequences. Most countries, again, including the PRC, have further legal stipulations regarding the exceptional freedoms enjoyed by works of literature and art. Such works can possess redeeming value, which allows them to have content that would otherwise be considered obscene, defamatory, blasphemous, or even seditious although the PRC draws the line at sedition, as we all know. As censorship scholar Nicole Moore puts it, and I quote, literature's categorical expression has depended in courts of law and regimes of regulation on its ability to differentiate itself from the law's proper object. And the ambiguities at stake have seemed to describe literature as such. In other words, Literature relies on censorship for its self-definition. All approaches to the study of literary censorship focused primarily on what Moore calls the wronged author or the encoded page, i.e. on what censors did to authors or how authors outsmarted them with clever writing. This is still by and large how literary censorship in China is written about, if it is written about at all. Most discussions of censorship in the PRC either fail to discuss literature or refuse to acknowledge that literature is censored by different standards. Censorship in China is deemed always to be political based on standards and methods that are the same, regardless of what type of text or activity is considered transgressive as an anonymous reviewer for the National Endowment of the Humanities, put it in response to my proposal for a book about censorship of literature in China, quote, I doubt that Professor Hawks' background in literature qualifies him to study Chinese censorship because this is a highly political phenomenon, unquote. Yes, these are sour grapes, but it's a very relevant quote in this context. By denying that Chinese literature can be different from any other kinds of texts when it comes to censorship, such commentators are also implicitly denying that Chinese literature has artistic merit or redeeming value. Its value lies solely in what it can tell us about the political situation in China. This attitude, I would argue, is in itself a form of censorship intended to uphold a mainstream consensus about how China differs from the West and how an authoritarian state cannot possibly produce good literature, i.e. literature that can be judged by aesthetic rather than political values. Now, I'm not saying anything new here yet. This is all still safe ground and I'm certainly not the first frustrated sinologist to make these observations. But there's a wider context here. When I say that a certain attitude is in itself a form of censorship, I'm referring not to formal censorship, but to structural censorship. The kind of censorship that is based not on legal codes, but on unspoken rules of social propriety perpetuated by social institutions. It is such an understanding of censorship as embedded in all types of social interaction, characterized as they always are by discursive expressions of power relations that lies at the core of the modern understanding of the phenomenon as formulated in the 1990s by an academic movement known as New Censorship Studies. New Censorship Studies drew much of its inspiration from post-structuralist studies of language and power, and often specifically from a truly brilliant article on the topic by the late Pierre Bourdieu, in which he defined censorship as a metaphor for social structures that govern both access to expression and a form of expression imposed on all producers of culture. In a special issue of PMLA published in 1994, the late Michael Holquist, a scholar of Slavic and comparative literature, gave this insight one of its most famous formulations, quote, To be for or against censorship as such is to assume a freedom no one has. Censorship is, one can only discriminate among its more and less repressive effects." Unquote. Around that same time from 1994 to 1995, the series of no fewer than 12 conferences about censorship was held at various universities in California supported by the American Academy of Arts and Sciences, the Getty Research Institute for the History of Art and the Humanities, and the Humanities Research Institute of the University of California. This large scale and impressive collaborative program on censorship resulted in what is probably the most canonical publication of the new censorship studies, the collection Censorship and Silencing, Practices of Cultural Regulation, edited by the legal scholar Robert C. Post. The title Censorship and Silencing shows that much of the debate at these conferences revolved around the question of whether or not some sort of distinction ought to be made between what was traditionally seen as censorship and something larger or more subtle that involves silencing people without necessarily making them aware of what is being done to them. One of the most often cited articles in Post's collection is entitled, Ruled Out, Vocabularies of the Censor and authored by Judith Butler. Uh, In the article, she offers the term foreclosure for the type of silencing that seems to be the opposite of formal censorship. Certain possibilities for expression appear to be foreclosed to the extent that they can barely be thought or articulated. However, Butler adds what are, in my view, two very important points. First, strict formal censorship and foreclosure are the two extremes on a spectrum that contains a lot of gray area in between. And second, even under extreme censorship regimes, individuals are not mere victims, they're subjects that are being produced by a certain system or institution and as such, they are never just passive. Both these observations seem very relevant to the situation with censorship, especially censorship of literature in the PRC. Much censorship of literature in the PRC takes place in those gray areas, but Western observers often insist on portraying it as located at the extreme of the spectrum. And Chinese authors and other cultural producers are subjects who possess agency rather than hapless victims. Sadly, of the 119 participants listed for these 12 conferences on censorship held in California in 1994 and 1995, not a single one seems to have had specialist expertise on China. For whatever reason, and I would argue that the reason is structural in the sense explained above, China was not included in this project. And the impact of all these stimulating conversations about the nuances and gray areas of censorship on the study of Chinese culture has been negligible. To my knowledge, at least, this body of theory rarely gets referred to by China scholars, with some felicitous exceptions, uh, which include uh, Dr. Howie Ng and Dr. Michael Chok, respectively from Westminster University and Hong Kong Metropolitan University, both of them former PhD students at SOAS, University of London, uh, and they are actually the ones that first alerted me to the existence of new censorship studies. Um, So I want to express my gratitude to them here. To illustrate this situation, here is the result of a Google search for the two terms new censorship studies and Chinese literature. There is only one search result, and that's me. (laughs) <laughs> so, the situation is actually not that bad and there is some earlier work um that deserves to be looked at uh, i'm going to skip that part of my paper but i'm just going to give a, a shout out to um, <coughs> uh, um professor richard krauss and his book the party and the rt uh, in which he makes the very important point that censorship of literature and culture in china is not a case of Godzilla stamping his foot on Bambi. The censor is not an evil monster, and the writers and cultural producers are not innocent, doe-eyed little dears. So um, shout out to to that book. Um, I'm going to remove Bambi and Godzilla now. Um, (laughs) My recent research has dealt with literature as part of post-Mao cultural policy. Bearing in mind Nicole Moore's definition of literature as that which is legally excluded from censorship, Deng Xiaoping's famous 1979 speech helped to foster a consensus about literature as that which is ideologically excluded from politics. But Deng's speech has a lot more content than just that one famous sentence. It is worth taking a closer look at both the text and the context of the speech, since it established a model for later speeches by other leaders and it helps us understand both the continuities and the shifting limitations of literary production in the PRC during the past four decades. I will not comment on the new policies that have been coming down for the last few months, uh, nor on the start of the new era this week. Um, but I'm happy to talk about that in the q and have I have been following those developments. I just haven't studied them in detail yet. Um, so, Deng Xiaoping's speech uh, was held at uh, the fourth National Conference of Chinese Writers and Artists. Um, the first ever National Conference of Chinese Writers and Artists, uh, or Wen Hue, as, as it's uh, commonly referred to now in China, was held in July 1949. Um, and we see the front page of the People's Daily here, and in the sort of lower right corner, you see uh, the the phrase Mao Zedong, Lai Chairman Mao is here uh, because Mao Zedong unexpectedly appeared on stage at that conference, and he gave a very brief speech. Uh, and I'm going to cite that speech in full. Uh, so Mao Zedong said, "Comrades, I have come today to welcome you. This conference that you are holding is a good conference. It is a conference that the revolution needs." It is a conference that the people as a whole have been hoping for because the people need you. You are the writers of the people, the artists of the people, the organizers of the people's literary and artistic work. You are of benefit to the revolution, of benefit to the people. We have reason to welcome you because the people need you. Let me say it again. We welcome you. And that was the whole speech. Um, And there's something ominous about, you know, a leader coming on stage saying, well, I, I welcome you, but, you know, only because you're of benefit to the people, right? And maybe one day I'll just not welcome you, right? So um, two further Wendai meetings were held in 1953 and 1960, and I haven't studied those yet. Uh, and so the fourth one was in 1979, Deng Xiaoping spoke. Uh, and similar to Mao and similar to what would become the standard format for later speeches, He started his speech by expressing his appreciation for all literary and artistic workers. But rather than just welcoming them, he actually uh, assured them of his confidence and trust. He used the word Xin Lai in Chinese. Uh, And almost every leader after Deng has also used that same word in their speeches to these conferences. Um, But Deng Xiaoping actually devoted most of his speech to describing what he considered to be the role of literature and the arts in Chinese society at that time setting very clear limits, most clearly in the following passage, quote, the most fundamental standard for assessing all of our work is whether or not it is of benefit or of harm to the four modernizations. Literature and art workers must work together with workers in education, in theory, in journalism and in politics, as well as with other relevant comrades to carry out a long-term and effective struggle in the realm of ideology, Against thought habits that are harmful to the four modernizations. In a turn of phrase that returns in later speeches and policy statements as well, he added that workers in literature and the arts have a unique responsibility that others cannot assume. This basic understanding that literature is different from other types of expression was important and paved the way for the reestablishment of literature as a field with its own history, its own values, its own institutions, and so on. The final part of Deng's speech and the final part of almost every similar speech by leaders after him is addressed specifically at writers and artists who are party members and the leaders of the various cultural associations, urging them to help and guide their colleagues. And it is in this part where Deng finally makes that famous statement about party members not giving orders to artists and writers, but rather supporting them in creating excellent works. Starting from 1996, the National Conference of Writers and Artists uh, has been held once every five years. At every one of these five yearly meetings, the national leaders have given speeches. Jiang Zemin in 96 and 2001, Hu Jintao in 2006 and 2011, Xi Jinping in 2016 and presumably he will do so again in December of this year. And who knows, he might even give an unprecedented third speech in 2026. Uh, But we'll have to wait and see about that. In his two speeches, Jiang Zemin, uh, who you see here on screen, um, reiterated that the party and the state have faith in writers. And he also addressed specifically the party members amongst the delegates and encouraged them to support and guide writers and artists in their important work. He referred back to Dong Xiaoping's 1979 speech. He confirmed the principle that writers and artists do not need to follow slogans, but he also made it clear that they are expected to support the socialist cause. He set out three main tasks, building socialism with Chinese characteristics, achieving socialist modernization and realizing the great revival of the Chinese nation. He stated that building an advanced culture is a challenge for development countries such as China, and he strongly contrasted socialist culture with capitalist culture, calling for the active promotion of patriotic, collectivist, and socialist thinking, and for resolute resistance against money-worshipping, hedonism, and extreme individualism. Putin Tao's two speeches to the national conference were relatively short. He was a man of few words. He was generally upbeat about his faith in writers and artists, and compared to Jiang, he placed more emphasis on the moral aspects of literature and the arts, saying that this field has always been important for building people's moral character, expressing humanity's beautiful ideals, enriching people's aesthetic enjoyment, and promoting social progress and development. Unlike Jiang Zemin, he does not place China's culture in the context of that of development countries. He talks about achieving a moderately well off or Xiao Kang society and says this requires competition, including competition in the realm of cultural construction. He wants China eventually to stand tall amidst the forest of advanced nations and also talks about increasing the country's self power. He also mentions the great revival of the Chinese nation, and he advocated for a socialist core value system. He noted that writers have wide social influence and should therefore pursue and transmit truth, goodness, and beauty. He encouraged them to be patriotic and to promote national unification, ethnic unity, economic development, and social progress. The main distinctive characteristic of Xi Jinping's speech uh, to the conference of 2016 is its length, nearly double that of all previous speeches that I discussed so far. The opening and closing of his speech adhere to the standard format, congratulating the Federation of Artists and the Writers Association, making some sort of statement of trust in writers and artists, and encouraging party members to be friends to their non-party colleagues. The lengthy main body of his speech makes four main points, cultural confidence, serving the people, courage in innovation and creation, and firm adherence to artistic ideals. Of those four, the first is fairly new in the context of these speeches, calling for patriotic belief in the greatness of the Chinese literary tradition. The second point, that literature should serve the people, is not new at all and was mentioned in some way, shape, or form in all the speeches discussed so far. When encouraging writers to be daring, she seems to champion the positive can-do attitude, or zheng neng liang, that is one of his pet phrases. And when talking about holding on to artistic ideals, he basically repeats what Yang and Hu had said about maintaining a lofty moral fiber and not giving in to vulgar tastes. His references to great revival of the Chinese nation and socialist core values are also not new. The main difference between Xi and others when looking at these speeches is that Xi, in fact, talks less about socialism and more about morality and patriotism, although even that trend had already started with Hu Jintao in 2011. Xi Jinping's main gripe and the main limit he seeks to impose is with culture he considers morally corrupt and somehow lacking in lofty social and aesthetic purposes. This explains the Xi regime's increased attention to regulating popular culture and related industries, as we have recently seen. And as I said, I'm happy to talk more about that in the Q&A. Um, but by now, you will have asked yourself if there were not any speeches between the one by Deng in 1979 and the one by Jiang in 1996. Were there no national conferences and no leader speeches during those 17 years? Well, according to the website of the Federation of Writers and Artists, there was one national conference held in November 1988. But unlike with the other national conferences, the website does not mention any important speech or congratulatory statement from any of the nation's leaders. It only has a small picture of Deng Xiaoping arriving at the conference, so we know that he was there. But of course, there was a speech. And fortunately, the People's Daily database contains the necessary information. In fact, the opening of the fifth National Conference of Writers and Artists, which took place on November the 8th, 1988, was front page news in the next day's edition of the People's Daily. And on that front page, we see pictures of a happy crowd of representatives shaking hands with not one, but two arriving leaders. The first, of course, is Deng Xiaoping, and the second one right behind him, for our younger viewers who might not recognize him, is of course the General Secretary of the Communist Party, Zhao Ziyang. And a second picture shows Zhao Ziyang seated at center stage, flanked by Yang shang who was the president of the PRC at the time and was the highest ranking state leader. And on the other side, flanked by Hu Li, uh, who was the standing committee member in charge of propaganda. The front page of the People's Daily also contains the full text of the congratulatory address, which perhaps surprisingly was not delivered by Zhao Ziyang but by Hu Chi Li. Although as the person in charge of propaganda, he would be considered to be directly in charge of the various cultural organizations. Hu Chi Li was purged in 1989 like Zhao Ziyang, which perhaps explains why this speech is missing from the Federation website. But in fact, much of what Hu Chi Li said in his speech was not very different from what we have seen in other speeches. He clearly states that literature and the arts must serve the people, the nation, the four modernizations, and socialism with Chinese characteristics. He sums it up in one simple sentence. Our literature and art serve the people and serve socialism. They cannot be without ideals, without purpose, nor without social responsibility. Towards the end of his speech, when he talks about the way in which the party and its members should engage with writers and artists, he does state quite explicitly the need for allowing artists themselves to develop the standards that determine whether a work is good or bad, or whether it represents high or low taste. He urges party members and cadres to join discussions about individual works only as readers or as audience members, not as political leaders issuing orders. So what, what can we learn from, from these speeches, um, close reading them as a kind of genre of political cultural production? Um, Well, I would argue that you cannot really understand what is going on in these speeches if you see them as straightforward authoritarianism. There are clear elements of interaction and negotiation. There's this sort of give and take in terms of, I trust you, but can you please do this for me? Uh, There's also a clear development, despite the socialist rhetoric, towards conceiving of literature and writers as deserving of certain freedoms Because of the elevated nature and the social and moral significance of their trade. Over time and over the course of the various speeches, there is also a clear tendency towards expression of global ambitions for Chinese literature, for it to stand tall among the literatures and cultures of other nations. In these respects, the framework for control developed over time during the reform era and into the present era, whatever it will be called, resembles less what we know about former communist countries and more what has been described by Peter MacDonald in his study of censorship in apartheid era, South Africa. I would argue this is the kind of connection you can make when you start looking into censorship theory and new censorship studies. In studying a cache of 500 decisions made by South African censors, many of whom were active themselves as writers and critics, Macdonald arrived at a three-point summary of the of the conception of literature underlying their activity. The first two of these points readily seem to apply to the post 1979 PRC case. Number one, literature which is governed governed by its own rules and unities constitutes a privileged aesthetic space set apart from more mundane forms of discourse, including pornography, mass market fiction journalism, and political writings. Number two, though it belongs first and foremost to a volk, that is to a nation understood as a racialized ethno-linguistic community, it is not narrowly local or patriotic. A particular literature achieves greatness only when it takes its place within a series of larger spheres construed variously as European, Western, or universal like the Chinese leaders saying Chinese literature should stand tall in the forest of literatures. I should add that especially the first of these points, establishing literature as a separate aesthetic space that cannot be conflated with things such as journalism and political writings, is obviously something that I personally also agree with and that underlies my insistence that censorship of literary expression in China is not the same as censorship of political expression. Similarly, McDonald's two points suggest that those who do insist that literature in China must always be understood in a political context are implicitly denying the possibility that Chinese literature can achieve greatness. The debate about Moyen winning the Nobel Prize in 2012 illustrates the forces at work here. The majority of scholars of Chinese literature at the time welcomed Moyen's success based on an independent assessment of the literary quality of his writings. Whereas the majority of journalistic and political critics, as well as a select number of Western writers who had not read Moyen's work, denounced the decision, foreclosing the possibility that great literature could ever be produced in a system that practices censorship and censoring themselves from approaching Moyen's work by literary standards. I make these points not to settle all scores, but to highlight the need for approaches to the study of censorship that recognize the complexity of the forces at work, especially in today's age of global cultural exchanges. There's one more observation that needs to be made about the leaders' speeches, and that has to do with their context. If Deng Xiaoping and Hu Li talk much about modernization and reform and about restoring some measure of freedom to writers and artists, That made sense within a context where the systems for production and distribution of literature, such as the publishing system, were not yet undergoing major changes. And the main issue was to provide access to official channels for writers and artists. If Jiang Zemin showed concern mainly for the potential negative effects of capitalism, this made sense within a context where a cultural industry was emerging that included a large number of private companies, culminating in China's entry into the WTO, which allowed foreign players to enter the market and gave Chinese cultural producers the opportunity to market their work abroad. Towards the end of the Hu Jintao era, and certainly during the Xi Jinping era, the globalization of culture looms large in the background of their speeches. They want Chinese culture to be recognized abroad. But their main concern is about a breakdown of moral values as a consequence of the booming popular culture industry backed by internet technology. Xi Jinping especially seems to see serious writers and artists as allies in the fight against moral corruption caused by popular culture, and has gone further than his predecessors in articulating exactly what he expects serious literature or serious culture to be. Realistic in its choice of subject matter, conservative in its moral outlook, and beautiful in a traditional sense in its form. He is aware that his statements on these matters are heeded only by a minority of the country's most acclaimed writers who have increasingly less reason to be reliant on the official state-supported system. He leaves those writers largely in peace and continues to allow them to have their own spaces of activity where they can uphold a view of literature as something that can and should only be appreciated by a small, sophisticated elite. And that, in fact, was the third point that Peter MacDonald made about South African censorship. Moving on now to my case studies in the remainder of this presentation, I want to say a few things about two very famous cases of literary censorship, one from the Jiang Zemin era and one from the Hu Jintao era which I believe illustrates some of the points I have made about the literary sphere during those two periods. The novel Fei Du or Ruined City by Jia Pinghua was published by Beijing Publishing House amidst the great hype in 1993. Jeremy Barmay has described the building blocks that caused that hype. Lavish promotion in the media, rumors that the novel would be full of sex, rumors that Jia was paid an exorbitant fee by the publisher. And then after it was published and became an instant bestseller, protracted debate in the media and in academic circles about the literary merits and demerits of the novel, including its most famous literary device, the use of empty printed blocks, which you see on your screen, to indicate the number of characters that the author supposedly willingly deleted in order to make sure the sex scenes were not too obscene. The use of this device, familiar to Chinese readers from cleansed editions of classic erotic novels such as Jinping Mei, made playful fun of censorship, adding a risque element that would not have been provided by descriptions of sex alone, since that in itself was already no longer a novelty in 1990s China. As Baume points out, academics and other intellectuals were especially active in the debate, clearly reveling in the fact that for the first time since 1989, they had a public forum again. Predictably, much of the debate revolved around the role of the market in a recently reformed Chinese publishing system. Jia Pinghua was an established author, very much part of the official literary circuit, and even a member of the National Political Consultative Conference. And yet, he was selling out, or at least so it seemed, to exactly those forces of capitalism that the Jiang Zemin regime had created, but was trying to keep away from literature and the arts. On January 20th, 1994, the Beijing Municipal Office for News and Publications issued a nationwide order to confiscate all circulating copies of Ruined City. And I'm grateful to Professor Li Jie and her research assistants for finding me a copy of that banning order. Thank you very much. Since the publisher was based in Beijing, it was within the jurisdiction of the Beijing Municipal Office to make this decision. It also instructed the publisher to hand over any copies still in stock and to refrain from printing new copies. The publisher was ordered to hand over all profits made and pay a fine equivalent to double the amount of profit. The order points out that all these measures are in line with three relevant legal documents issued in the 1980s. One by the General Administration for Press and Publishing, one jointly issued by the Ministry of Culture, the Ministry of Finance, and the National Trade Administration, and one jointly issued by the Central Committee and the State Council. Taken together, these three legal documents supported the case for A, considering the book obscene, B, for a local government to issue a nationwide ban, and C, for the specific financial penalty to be imposed. Of those three, the first one is referred to in the greatest detail. The banning order stipulates the exact clauses of the law according to which ruined city could legally be considered obscene and therefore banned. Upon inspection, it appears that these legal clauses are part of obscenity legislation introduced to China in the late 1980s. Like obscenity legislation in other countries, the regulations in question provide some detail as to what type of description of sexual activity counts as obscene. It also explains the principle of social harm, linking obscenity to potential harm caused especially to young readers. And in this sense, it is reminiscent of the Hicklin Test, which formed the basis of US and UK obscenity legislation well into the 1950s. These principles are referred to in the Banning Order of Ruin City. Interestingly, the Banning Order also singles out the device of using empty blocks to indicate words that were removed stating that this was merely a gimmick to attract even more attention to the lewd content. And although I don't support the censorship, I do believe that this judgment is absolutely spot on. The one thing that the banning order does not explicitly state, even though the relevant legal provisions would have expected it, is whether or not ruined city can be considered to have literary value, since possessing such value would have legally excluded it from the category of obscenity. As always with this type of legislation, as we have seen in our discussion of due censorship theory, the decision to label the work as obscene automatically means withdrawing it from the realm of literature. None of this affected ja Pinghua personally. He continued to write, continued to build a career both inside the PRC and abroad, winning several important international literary prizes. Eventually in 2009, 15 years after the original banning, Ruined City was republished. The only change being the removal of the empty blocks. As ironies of censorship go, this one is remarkable. By removing blank space, a publication became unbanned. I'm oversimplifying slightly, but I couldn't resist saying that. Uh, An English translation of the work by Howard Goldblatt, which reinstated the empty blocks, appeared in 2016 in the Chinese Literature Today book series, funded in part by a grant from the Chinese government. The case of Ruined City shows anxieties about capitalistic exploitation of the literary market, but it also shows a remarkably correct legal process. If the cultural product banned in this way would have been, say, a hardcore pornographic video, the decision would not have raised eyebrows and would not have received international attention. Or to give a somewhat less random example, the much later banning on the basis of similar legislation of the Chinese translation of Fifty Shades of Grey drew very little attention among freedom of speech advocates outside China. We may want to ask ourselves if our objection to censorship in China is really an objection to censorship or an objection to the wrong things being censored. The case of Yan Lianko's novella Wei Renmin Fu Wu, Serve the People, first published in January 2005 and banned soon thereafter, shows how the changes in the domestic and international media and publishing environment played out in a censorship case. Compared to Ruined City, the description of sex in Serve the People is tame. What made the book transgressive was that the novel was set during the Cultural Revolution and that the sex scenes featured the use of images of and slogans by Mao Zedong as aphrodisiacs. Furthermore, rather than a playful reference to censorship, as in the case of Jiapingwa's Empty Blocks, Serve the People contains a biting satire of censorship through its ending, when the entire army unit in which the story takes place is dissolved, and all traces of its existence are removed as if it were never there, merely in order to cover up the illicit extramarital relationship between a common soldier and the wife of a high-ranking officer. Like Jia Pinghua, Yen Lianke was already an established and indeed a prize-winning author prior to writing Serve the People. After he finished the manuscript for Serve the People, he he offered it to various literary magazines and eventually found a home for it with the magazine Hua Cheng, or Flower City, based in Guangdong. According to Yen's own account, which I cannot verify, the original manuscript was 90,000 words. Prior to offering it to Flower City, he himself cut out 40,000 works to make it less potentially offensive. The editors of Flower City cut another 10,000, this I can verify, before it was published. Nevertheless, when the January 2005 issue of Flower City came out, It was very swiftly banned by order of the highest authority, the propaganda department of the CCP. Although I have not seen the actual document that was sent down from the propaganda department, it was widely cited at the time as containing blanket bans on distributing, sorry, distributing, reprinting, discussing, excerpting, or reporting on serve the people. Copies of the magazines already distributed were confiscated. Propaganda Departments at all local levels were provided with the rationale for the banning, which was that the work (coughs) slandered Mao Zedong, slandered the lofty purpose of Mao Zedong's speech to serve the people, slandered the people's army, slandered the revolution and politics, as well as that its excessive descriptions of sex confuse people's thinking, and that it spreads mistaken Western views. News of the banning spread rapidly, mainly through the Internet, where copies of different versions of the text quickly began to circulate. Chinese language media in Hong Kong reported on the case almost immediately, <clears throat> citing the official document from the propaganda department, Hyping served the people as the first banned book of 2005, and even interviewing Yen Nien-Ko himself. Um, And they, among other things, asked him the question that I've always wanted to ask him, did you really not think this was gonna get bad? Um, And in the interview, he explained that, you know, as an author, he, Yanko, explained that he as an author was free to write whatever he wanted, but that it was the publishers who needed to be careful and might get punished. He stated that he had not been bothered in any way by the authorities after writing served the people And indeed, he later went on to alternate successful prize-winning work with other works that received bans. In a later essay about censorship, Yen repeats his claims about his own freedoms as a writer, but mentions specifically that when Serve the People was banned, the responsible editors at the Flower City magazine and those responsible for publishing the magazine had been fined, dismissed, and punished. For those who insist on studying censorship in the perpetrator versus victim or Godzilla versus Bambi model, it might be instructive to realize that in the PRC, the most likely victim of censorship is usually not the author, but rather the publisher. And that this is exactly the same in most Western countries. For instance, in the famous trial of Allen Ginsberg's poem Howl, it was not Ginsberg who was on trial, but his publisher. Again, we see a space here where things connect across the borderline between what is so often presented as a rigidly binary opposition between authoritarian democratic systems. By 2008, Grove Atlantic came out with an English translation of Serve the People, marketing it as you see here, with slogans like Banned in China, the sexy satirical sensation. In its promotional material, the publisher also cited the CCP propaganda department's judgment on the novella, turning the censor's language into advertising language aimed at an implied audience curious to read banned books from China. The translation identifies Yen Nian as the sole copyright holder of the original text, which means that to some extent the banning of his work ironically earned him a substantial sum of money. The case of Serve the People definitely does show a more authoritarian side of Chinese literary censorship. As in the case of Ruined City, the authorities did have a legal avenue available via the country's notoriously strict defamation laws, which unlike in other countries, forbid defamation of the reputation of individuals who are no longer living. An argument about defamation of Mao Zedong would almost certainly have resulted in a ban but perhaps would have taken longer to effectuate and would have been more publicly visible. Moreover, in view of Mao's status and the significance of Mao's reputation to the overall identity of the CCP leadership, the novella's combination of Mao's image and his famous slogan with descriptions of wanton sexual activity was simply too offensive for the party leadership. It went past their political and their moral bottom line and caused them to use the most effective measure in their arsenal, the immediate ban coming directly from the propaganda department. Linking this back to Hu Jintao's speeches, we see the rising concern about writers and artists not setting the right moral and political examples, which I've argued to be at least in part a response to the pressures from popular culture, globalization, and the spread of the internet. For sure, both in the domestic and in the global context, The ban almost instantly became an attraction, as well as a marketing tool at a time when international publishers were keen to acquire the rights to any books supposedly or genuinely banned in China. Chinese writers could stand tall internationally with books like that, but it was hardly the kind of international recognition that the leaders had in mind. It was also, of course, not a form of recognition based solely on literary qualities. Although of the People was published in English and several other languages not long after its banning, and although it continued to be available for Chinese readers on the internet until at least 2011 and probably longer, it took until 2020 uh, for a full Chinese language edition to appear outside the mainland. Published by City University in Press in Hong Kong in 2020, it once again comes with quotes from the banning order printed on the cover as marketing material as well as the phrase, a banned novel that shook the mainland. The magazine Flower City still exists. Its website has little descriptions of the contents of every single issue it has ever published. The January 2005 issue is there, but Serve the People is not listed as part of the contents. Ironically, given the novella satire of censorship's powers of erasure, it has itself been erased, at least in this particular context. On the other hand, the Duxiu database, China's largest provider of access to digitized books and magazines, does contain a copy of the original table of contents of the Flower City issue in question. And of course, Serve the People is listed there. In conclusion, the banning of Ruined City is certainly not your average obscenity case. And the banning of Serve the People is definitely not your average defamation nor are the various leader speeches I have discussed typical examples of cultural policymaking. Yet what I hope to have shown with this exercise, which is still a work in progress, is that at the very least the censorship of literature in reform era China has characteristics that connected to research done on censorship, cultural policy and publishing laws in other part of the world. Moreover, The behaviors associated with observations of Chinese censorship in the Western world show plenty of evidence of structural censorship, of community pressures foreclosing attempts to bring Chinese literature into productive debates about the massive gray area of cultural control that encompasses all that we do, regardless of whether or not we live under authoritarian rule. At the very least, we should be able to discuss these ideas rather than allow them to continue to be silenced thank you very much
0: thank you so much Hey, uh thank you for that really illuminating and nuanced talk that also challenges a lot of conventional wisdoms about uh, Chinese censorship. Um, I see that there are already a number of uh, questions in the QA, and a but uh, everyone, as you think about it, um, please feel free to type in your question. Um, but I think Professor David Wang will ask the first question.
2: Thank you very much, Jia, And thank you very much, uh, Michelle, for such a wonderful talk. I think this is um, an extremely important topic and very, very provocative, of course, and also very sobering for all of us to think of the uh, this quote-unquote gray area, right, uh, which exists not only uh, in China and perhaps in other uh, cultural spheres all over the world. Um, for my part, I, I have a one update for you and uh, also one question. Um, uh, we we'll probably can all think about actually, not necessarily a specific answer. The update is that uh the Jia both Jia Ping-wa and Yan Lian Ke are extremely well-established writers. So um, in a way, um it's really a very subtle tug of war between Xiaopinghua, Yan Lian Ke and the uh, the, the censorship agencies on behalf of the government and of course there is the very um, intriguing factor of uh, of a capital now uh, sort of a sneaking into this uh, whole uh, the market versus um, the uh, the bureaucratic sphere so the, the 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 drama is still going on um, just this year um, uh, early this spring uh, Japinwa. Uh, sort of finished two novellas. One is um, um, almost kind of a sequel to Fei Du. Uh, In this new novella, he literally just uh, um, gave a kind of a tell-all, a kind of fictional sort of a text of of just revealing what exactly the story really was behind the writing and the publication of a Du. Tu. It turned out that he wrote the novel, according to Jiaqin was a fictional um, a version, um, he wrote the novel, which coincided with um, the, um, the outbreak of a Tiananmen incident. So to me, this is perhaps the first time a, a mainstream writer who's so blatantly Unveil the, the relationship between uh, the, uh, the movement and the writing of, uh, of literature. I think this is something interesting. Um, we don't know whether this is a, a realistic account or a jiaping own sort of fictional reconstruct, but still um, this is, a, I think this is a bold intervention with um, the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the public sphere at this particularly sensitive moment. And no doubt, uh, the novel um, was banned. And it could, couldn't find a place for publication. And uh, so I, I thought this is very interesting. The story is still developing. And also at the same time, Jia Ping-wa finished another novella, which is a, a sort of a biographical account of, um, of uh, his growing up during the Cultural Revolution. And uh, very intriguingly, uh, that novella was banned too. So no publication uh, is uh, is likely at this point. On the other hand, uh, Yan Lianke finished his his new novel, um, very, very intriguingly titled The China Story. And you could tell his intention, right? He wrote literally against the grain of uh, this uh, presidential decree, uh, tell the good China story. Um, Lin Yan Lianke, literally all of Yan Lian Ke's fictional works are banned right now in China. And I was given to know only a couple of collections of his uh, his essays uh, are still made available on the market but also Yan Lian Ke has been informed that um, beyond the this, uh, this current print, no other possibilities either. So the uh, the whole system of a censorship um, is, is very, um, is um is uh, is omnipresent is is very subtle it is infiltrating into every layer of um of of the market of the uh the the the, the uh, academia and the readership and so on. so it's um it's uh, it's a developing story at this point, given the current circumstances. So um, I, I just wanted to uh, uh, bring this up for your for for your thought. My question, however, is: um, um, you have addressed mostly the uh, the governmental part of this whole censorship um, mechanism today, and I understand that this is a, a developing project. I just wanted to find out, um, perhaps uh, you are working on it anyway. How, how internet? I think this is a probably uh, the most crucial part of the whole uh, the, a game now. How internet is playing um, a, a kind of a role in this new uh, age or new era of a censorship, uh, since. 2015 since the publication of your book on uh, internet and the literature how internet could play um, both the, the role of um, of a kind of a, of a censorship um, or a, a role of, of agency so to speak in response to the uh, the blocks as established by by censors and authorities. Um, particularly online um, uh, literature with quotation marks because we understand millions of awards are being produced uh, online. And China probably can really boast being the largest um, sort of producer of a, of a traditional format of literature online, serialized uh, uh, the, the fictions and so forth. There's a lot of IP industry um, the business going on at the same time. So I, I think the internet um, uh, has become the latest uh, the, the battleground. For for censorship or anti-censorship, so um, uh, maybe you could share some of your insight um, uh, with us on this matter. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much. Uh, I love that you're using terms like tug of war and battleground, right? which which means you sort of already accepted the, the the notion that it's not just Godzilla and Bambi that there's actually that there's actually struggle going on, right? that there are forces in competition. Um, Thank you so much for these updates about Pinghua and, and Yen Uh The, uh, I mean, I'm always reminded of, of you know, the wise words of my mentor Bonnie McDougall uh, when studying censorship: never believe the author. <laughs> but, but then, very often the author is all we have, uh, because it's, you know, it's so hard to find other material substantiating these censorship cases, especially ones uh that refer to print culture. It's internet is a different question. I'll come to that in a minute. Uh Yanko has written a lot about censorship, uh not just of his own work, but but in general. And, and you know, and some of what he writes is is very perceptive. And 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 other things I, I feel the need to want to verify, but but I can't. Um but you know there's there's no doubt that you know the the pattern he was in where he was alternating prize-winning novels in China with banned novels that found an audience. I, I think that p- pattern has come to an end. And he is, uh, as you say, it's very difficult for him to study, to to publish fiction at the moment. Uh, his books are still in libraries. They're, they're still being studied by academics. But, um, but yeah, he, he's having a very difficult time at the moment. Uh Jabingwa, that's 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 really interesting, and I want to know more about that that case. Uh, so thank you, thank you very much for that. Um, again, it's nice to have the author telling us the story behind <laughs> the censorship, but uh, I'd love to hear from other people as well. And um, as for your question about online literature, um, yes, there's a massive amount of literature being published online. In China, on a daily basis, uh, most of it is uh, popular genre fiction, uh, and like most popular culture, uh, that's come under a lot of scrutiny uh, from the uh, from the authorities um, for mainly for perceived lacking of sort of moral decency. Uh, which sometimes is is defined in a very conservative way. Uh, I've elsewhere I've sort of compared it to sort of you know, 1950s American popular culture, which is sort of, you know, very conservative, especially gender roles, very conservative, no sex, et cetera. Uh, um, but of course, there are there are plenty of ways around that for people who know how to how to access certain sites. Uh, there's a lot going on, uh, of course, you know, with all that attention for popular literature online, there's still a lot of uh, elite literature or serious literature, whatever you want to call it, uh, literature for small audiences still being published online and also circulating in print, sort of privately printed. So uh, so those spaces are still there and the internet certainly also facilitates those spaces. So, um, and, I, and I do believe that um, the regime is less worried about those spaces because the, the readership is relatively small and, and so it will only act when something from those spaces like Ja uh recent work uh, threatens to sort of become an incident or become a big thing um, so um, and especially if it tells the story of censorship right? there's this there's nothing that censors ban more frequently than writings about censorship. Right? <laughs> that is the one, the one thing that censors all over the world have in common. They don't like people writing about censorship. So, um, so yeah, but thank you very much for both your update and your question.
0: Thank you so much. If I may, I know some a lot of questions are starting to accumulate, but I, I really would like to ask. Um, oh, oh, I actually have a million questions, but I will try to sort of um, synthesize them. Um, and uh, so, well, I I might actually start with um, the uh, the case of um, uh, Fei Du being republished with those blocks removed. And this actually reminds me, like, what is it that about those blocks that are so titillating in some ways? I I am reminded of uh, a censorship practice of films from the uh, 1970s of a lot of um, uh, film projectionists, actually they were supposed to censor a ballet sequence from the Soviet film Lenin in 1918, because they, it's, and also sort of kissing scenes, but they're kind of central to the film's plot. So they're he, they're, they're not really cut out. So the, the projectionist literally puts his hand in front of the projector and censors those scenes. And then, so everyone looks, at the projector, but then the projectionist uh, who then you know sometimes lets go of his fingers so that we can actually see a bit of the the film. And that actually enhances the eroticism of whatever audiences are supposed to see. So I I wanted to use that as a question about the hand of the censor, uh, whether that hand can also be a very creative hand. Um, Also, particularly the relationship between um, censorship and creativity. You mentioned Mo Yan at some point, and I know that he stirred up quite a lot of controversy in uh, Stockholm when he was accepting his Nobel Prize and then said in some kind of um, press conference. I think this is a 2012 when he compared censorship to airport security and it's somehow necessary. And, uh, and then but in a later interview, he also talked about how censorship's taboos actually uh, made writers uh, kind of implicitly that it made writers more, more creative and was saying that, well, all those taboos made the literary scene, like breaking taboos in the 1980s made that uh, time extremely um, interesting Interesting. and uh, made literary production um, uh, flourish in in some ways. So um, I was wondering just about those kinds of comments about censorship, whether there can be creativity associated as a result of censorship or there can be uh, creative acts by the censor as well or you know can there be Chinese uh, censorship theories as well like from what you've been reading like um are, are those kinds of speeches uh, do, do they also have some kind of theoretical potential I guess
1: yes they do uh, I, I just got a message saying my internet connection is unstable so I guess the censor is is on to us somehow <laughs> but um but while I can still speak let me say um I, I refer to the work of, uh, uh, of Dr. Hao uh who now teaches at the University of Westminster, and his his dissertation at SOAS at the time uh, was about uh, television censorship uh, from sort of the beginnings of television in China until you know the early two thousands or so, and 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 he was using some of some new censorship theory that emphasizes sort of the. The productive effect of censorship right? not in the sense that I mean I don't necessarily believe censorship makes you a better writer but um, but censorship especially of popular culture often engenders debate right? it produces attention to certain things and people talk about it and and, and in that sense it can have a have a productive effect. Um, the other thing is, I mean, there's a very famous study from uh, by Annabel Patterson, I believe, uh, censorship and interpretation. I think is the title, which studies um, English literature and, and going back to you know the days of, of Shakespeare and, and arguing that censorship also was sort of uh, um, responsible for creating the notion that. Literary writing needs to be somewhat indirect in how it expresses itself, right? so that at some point a consensus emerged between writers and senses that you know if you use a metaphor, i'm going to pretend I don't understand the metaphor <laughs> and and that sort of helped to create literary language as such right so I mean these are all really interesting approaches and 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 very rich approaches that I think will. Are there for us to use when we study Chinese literature? And and you know the problem is that, that we're afraid. I mean, we're sort of censoring ourselves. And, well, we you know, can we really take such a relativistic approach to Chinese censorship? Isn't Chinese censorship really bad? And um and that's so that's sort of what you know what we struggle with. What I I struggle with still when I give presentations like this as well, because of course, there are very serious victims of censorship in China. Uh, most of them tend not to be writers. As I said, most of them tend to be publishers. Uh, or, And if you go beyond literature, then, of course, it's much worse. Um, and that sort of links back to Moya, and That was part of this, the, the paper that I had to cut out because it was too long. That the, that same press conference where Morian was asked about what he thought of the fact that there were so many writers in prison in China. And he said, I, <laughs> there's no such thing. I've never heard about that. <laughs> and, and people got really angry that he said he just denied that. But then, but so the problem was the question was formulated in Chinese using the word jia, right? And jia means a very serious elite literary writer who has published works, et cetera. And if you define it like that, you know, then Mo Yan was absolutely right. There were no jia in prison, with maybe the exception of Liu Xiaobo at the time, but even Liu Xiaobo doesn't necessarily get referred to as a Zuojia mm-hmm. inside China, right? So, um, so there are all these subtleties about where, you know, and I've written about that in the context of 1930s censorship, where uh, sometimes political forces or media forces, they they like to talk about how poor writers that are being censored because that makes a regime sound even more ruthless than if you say they're censoring their political opponents. Yeah, so
0: thank you so much. I think uh we already have quite a number of questions in the in the QA. So we will get to um questions from the audience. Um so uh, Charles Laughlin has a question. Uh speaking of hu Hu Jintao's mention of the social influence of literary authors. Do you think the influence of Chinese writers as public intellectual has declined in recent years? And also, by the way, I'm really enjoying your talk a great deal. Thank you for giving such a broad and insightful perspective on contemporary Chinese literature.
1: Well, thank you, Charles, and and, and great to know you're here. Uh, So I I haven't thought about that question, um, but, uh, I mean, just in general, I believe, as I said, that the space for sort of serious literature is shrinking in China, that it's it's very much becoming a space that uh, keeps itself somewhat uh, um, separate from what is going on in society and in politics. And that's sort of what, um, what everybody seems to be OK with. Um writers themselves. I mean, let me put it this way. Kuo, when he wrote about censorship, he he said a lot of things that I agreed with. But one thing he says that I disagree with is he says that censorship creates sort of uh, readers' habits where they're only interested in sort of, you know, uh, middle-of-the-road sort of uh, Insignificant popular writing, and and then he says, you know, look at how many people are interested in reading Guo Ming and things like that. And that's if only there was no censorship, then we wouldn't have all that bad popular literature getting so much attention. And I don't believe that. I mean, so I think a lot of a lot of writers would have like to have more of a social impact as public intellectuals. Uh, Xi Jinping, if you read his speeches, definitely wants writers to have more of uh, social impact. You know, he goes on and on more so than Hu Jintao. Even Xi Jinping keeps saying, "You guys, you know, you are the engineers of the soul, right? And you are, and you have so these great moral values, and you you represent truth and goodness and beauty, and your know, society needs you to fight corruption." Um, but yeah, I somehow don't think that writers like Yan Niankui would would want to go down that road, right? So it is is—it is tricky, right? It's, its so the, the forces of the market and the forces of the ideology don't seem to benefit writers playing a role as public intellectuals in China right now, uh, at least not on the public stage. Uh, so yeah, so that's...
0: Thank you so much. Uh, And there are actually two questions on censor, on the issue of uh, self-censorship, one from an anonymous attendee. Uh, I was wondering if you can kindly elaborate on the role of self-censorship in the structural censorship, especially how it relates to the idea the individual isn't merely victim in the face of official censorship mechanism. And a question from Amanda Schumann. Thank you for this interesting talk. I heard Yelenke speak in 2011 at the bookworm in Beijing, and someone asked him about whether he censored his own writing. Um, he claimed that he didn't, but he also said that he tells his students not to write like he does. What do you think about this? To what extent have authors like Yan self-censored consciously or unconsciously? And do you think that perhaps he has an advantage now that he's known and actually has an audience as a compared to less known authors such as students in the future? And that makes him, it makes it easier to write the way he does. Mm-hmm.
1: So, so if you follow the uh, um, the definition of censorship that people like Pierre Bourdieu, uh are putting forward, then of course um, all of us are constantly self-censoring ourselves all the time, right? To the to the extent that there is no such thing as absolute freedom of expression. It's 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 there's always a restriction within whatever context on, on what you can say. Right. So that's so in that sense either there is no self-censorship or or, or all censorship is self-censorship. But self-censorship is a really tricky term, um, you know, and, and I always ask my students to imagine, you know, as a thought experiment, imagine, you know, two novels that are completely identical for whatever reason. They're written by two different authors, right? and one of them says, this is my life's work, I'm so proud of this novel, and the other one says, oh, I would have written a completely different novel if if... Only I hadn't had to self-censor myself, right? and it's it's who's telling the truth? You don't know. Uh, how do you know that you're censoring yourself? Maybe you're just making a decision that means you can get paid more, or your books can sell. Or it's 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 really hard to to come up with a definition of self-censorship that actually works. Um, but if you, you know if you want to come up with a definition that that works, maybe look at at you know present day Hong Kong. You know, look at the what is known as the chilling effect, right? A new law comes into effect, and all of a sudden people get really scared, and they start changing the way they write. You know, um, it's still censorship. It's still an authority doing it to you. You're not doing it to yourself, right? But it is, but it is a direct result of this sense of fear right, that's being instilled in you. Um, There's also such a thing as soft censorship, right, where and that's a term Yanenko uses as well and I've come across it in uh, new censorship studies as well, where nobody's really telling you exactly what to do and nobody's actually sort of banning you, but somehow you know, the authority has ways of making sure that what you write doesn't attract a lot of attention, right? Um, So a lot of things don't even need to be banned or Uh, take the example of social media right so you don't ban actual social media posts you you ban search terms right and then the likelihood that people can find those those offensive uh, or dissident posts is reduced to such a large extent that you know it doesn't matter that they're still there right so um as for what Yanenko said about the way he writes and, and the way he's not telling his students to write, um, I think that makes perfect sense. Uh, and again, that is something that applies in all kinds of contexts. Um, I think all of us as professors also sometimes tell our students not to work on certain topics or not to write in certain ways about certain things because we worry about their careers. Uh, and then, as soon as we have tenure, it's like, okay, now I'm just going to write whatever I want. <laughs> but, um, so, I mean, that's so that's not necessarily that unusual. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean, Yanlinko has has repeatedly stated that he does not feel that as a writer he is being restricted in his writing. But the question is, can it be published? Um, and, that decision, and it doesn't even have to be a formal ban. It can just be that an editor just feels that, or a publisher feels that you know it's not the right moment, or well, I can publish it, but remove the following five chapters. And it's I mean, there are all kinds of ways of making sure that things don't appear.
0: Yeah, thank you. Actually, on the note of like banning search terms and also following up on um, Professor Wong's question about internet, uh, uh, um, Chen Yadong, a graduate student, um, here is asked, um, I have a question about censorship technology. As OCR and automatic keyword extraction have become normal practices of censorship of, for any form of writing on the internet, what's the position of technology in the logic of censorship in China today? Um, and if I may sort of connect, although this may be asked something different. I'm interested in um, uh, a question from um, Ahmed Neufeld saying, have you found clever and innovative ways the writers use to circumvent some of the censorship? Uh, So I I think together, the question is like, does technology make censorship more powerful or does it actually make um, writers more, um, it provides writers more agency to circumvent censorship?
1: So, I mean, a a lot of the. I mean, there's a lot more of this happening outside the literary sphere, right? So I am trying to sort of, to keep my project as much as possible focused on the literary sphere, in part because I do want to make that argument that censorship of literature in China is not necessarily the same as censorship of other things, and also that there are certain things about literature and censorship that you come across in, in other countries as well, and that Deserve to be studied in comparison, right? But, um, but yeah. Having said all that, of course, there's a huge potential in in uh, tracking people and their expression online. Uh, I mean, ironically, China has, according to the experts, uh, which I'm not, China has just issued a, a really. Uh, Good data protection legal framework that is far ahead of the U.S. and, and the EU and any other any other countries. Right? So uh, it doesn't necessarily provide protection for political dissidents, but it certainly provides protection for privacy online in, in many areas that are not yet protected here. So um, so that is and again that's something that we're not supposed to say, but it's actually true, right? Um, in terms of writers um, doing really clever things to get around the censorship, but I haven't really studied that. That's sort of more of a conventional way of studying censorship is, is look at, you know, what's being done to the author or what the author is trying to do to sort of get published anyway. Um, I've, I've never been as you both know much of a text scholar right i tend to sort of look at all the people that are involved in in these various processes but uh, um i mean online i think it's 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 getting harder right? it's it's getting harder to uh, of course you could still you know intentionally miswrite words or add in you know hyphens or asterisks or Put the text in an image, but even that is not necessarily going to help you. Put it upside down. I mean, there are all kinds of ways. Um, I do believe that in the end, what it comes down to is that is that whatever the artificial intelligence finds still has to be looked at by people to decide whether. I mean, in that sense, it's it's no different from sort of you know, Facebook content moderation. I mean, they're just people who sit there behind a computer looking at. Things that have been identified by the filters as potentially problematic, and I have about three seconds to decide—you know, remove, don't remove, remove, don't. I mean, that—that's a lot of it is still based on human labor like that, and it's—it's it's similar in China, and um, so part of the challenge, and that's why I envy people like Peter McDonald. Uh, and also Robert Danton, who worked on East German censorship, is part of the challenge is to actually find those human beings who are doing that. Mm-hmm. Because in the case of sort of serious literature, it's quite likely that those human beings are actually people like us, right, scholars or maybe other writers or critics, etc. cetera. It's, uh, and those would be interesting conversations. But I've, I've, I've never been able to, to uh, identify any of these people so far.
0: Thank you. Um, uh, another question from a, a PhD student, uh, Hans-Christoph um, thank you for the excellent talk. Uh, Butler's concept of foreclosure is really interesting. While the role of um, state censorship is relatively easy to investigate via bans and the agency's own publicized reasons for a ban, it is hard to investigate what is foreclosed. What do, you ha- uh, what, do you have any thoughts about how to execute this kind of history of absence when it comes to what is foreclosed in the PRC literary world?
1: yeah it is really hard and 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 as I said, butler does see that as an extreme right because so if something is foreclosed because there's really a sort of heavy taboo on it that we ourselves don't even recognize, then of course we we can't really study it but but what you can study is the gray area in between right? and and I think that's so for instance um what we see as authoritarian measures um you know chinese leaders or authorities saying certain things about literature you know at the level of discussions taking place in publishing houses for instance they often work more as um you know structural types of censorship it's like well as we all know probably you know certain things we should avoid or um you know do a little bit of that and so and there are a lot of things that don't even need to be said and people sort of sort of understand right so it's it's as you go sort of further down into the actual nitty-gritty of the system it's much less about people being told to this right it's more about sort of editors doing their daily job and sort of knowing what they can and cannot get away with right and then uh, and acting in accordance with sort of that understanding, um, and that just becomes part of their discourse and, you know, part of what they believe in, probably in, in many ways as well. So, uh, and that's sort of part of, I suppose, the argument I want to make is to say that you know, it's it's not just authoritarian formal censorship. There's a lot of structural censorship taking place in these negotiations about literature. uh, And we should acknowledge that. And we should try to document these these cases. But of course, it is really difficult to document them.
0: Thank you so much. Well, questions keep coming, but I think we probably have time for just, uh, I read out uh, two more questions. That's last questions. Uh, one from uh, Sabina Knight. Uh, thank you for a very informative and thought-provoking talk. Could you comment on translators and reviewers' roles in challenging or unwittingly reinforcing censorship? And then another one from Eva Chow. Um, Can you say more um, on the... On the fact that it's the publishers who suffer when their books are banned so both questions having to do with other than authors but rather reviewers translators and publishers
1: yeah i mean to to, to start with you know thank you both for these questions uh, start with the second one uh, I, I really i think it's really important i don't necessarily have more to say about publishers but i think it's really important to. To realize that you know the publishers the editors are the ones that are that are under pressure that are responsible for putting things out into the public domain and they make and they make decisions that are in part commercial in part moral in part political and that you know that whole mix is is, is very difficult to understand and they also have you know there's personal risk for them involved as well and then that is not often recognized because the attention always goes to the author. Right, so the author is often seen as a victim, even though the real victim is the publisher. And and that goes back to the entire sort of myth about the author as creator that the wonderful Pierre Bourdieu has described in in some of his other works as well. Um, yeah, I love the question about translators and and reviewers, uh, and I, I don't really have a good answer. To it, um, I think we've passed the stage now where banned in China is a reason for choosing to translate or review something. Uh, I, I think publishers in in the U.S. and Europe they've sort of moved moved beyond that point. Um, so, um, but yeah, the entire system of you know. Certain things being published by certain publishing houses and then being reviewed by certain reviewers and maybe ending up being translated. Of course, this again is a system that that has inherent structures, unequal structures. That means some works and some authors get more attention than others, and that's uh, uh, so. That's you know again something that doesn't get a lot of attention because all the attention is on what the Chinese government. Is doing right but so a lot of these structural inequalities uh such as for instance the lack of diversity in contemporary chinese literature that you the serious lack of uh of female authors uh female critics um the the sort of also lack of translators of, of Work by women. I mean, that's and how that's sort of seen as something that's just okay by a lot of male authors and male critics. Uh, it's it's. Um, I don't think enough is being written about that, uh, and so, um, I mean, you can't blame everything on the Chinese government. And when you, when you start looking at these these structures of inequality, uh, then you're delving into long-standing social and moral uh, habits and um, conventions that, you know, that deserve to be studied rather than transplaced onto uh, the government. Thank
0: you so much for this, yeah, and on that very sobering note, I I think um, I'm probably not speaking for myself, just for myself, when I say we probably won't be thinking about Chinese censorship in quite the same way, and also thank you to everyone for tuning in, we had a really lively Q&A, and uh, um, yeah, and thank you again to Professor Hawks for for this illuminating lecture. Thank you very much. Thank Thank you, bye.